It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. We hear a lot about people not trusting the media. There are certain journalists, however, who rise above that. Mike DeCourcy is one. If you see him, hear him, or read his column in the sporting news, you can take it to the bank that Mike knows what he's writing or talking about. You might not always agree with him, but he has facts to back up his point. Mike knows college basketball as well as anyone in the media. He's been covering the sport for 37 seasons and doing so with a love that never wavers. Some of my own favorite memories are sitting next to Mike on press row, discussing a game as it unfolds in front of us. Let's hear some of his own memories and tales. Welcome, Mike. It's a real pleasure to have you join us on Press Box Access. Well, it's 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 an honor, really. Uh, considering some of the people that you've had roll through here, uh, I'm I'm honored to even be considered to to have a discussion with you. Well, if you only knew we paid those people to come, <laughs> then you'll be hitting me up for the next check. So, thank you, Michael. <laughs> In all seriousness, Mike, I want to say you've always been one of my favorites to uh, share time and space with, uh, and not just because of a shared love of college basketball and your expertise. Uh, being a, a United States Basketball Writers Hall of Fame member and on and on. Everybody knows college basketball, knows Mike DeCourcy. But really, just being around you, your personality, Mike, you're a happy guy, you're upbeat, you're smiling. Uh, I don't know sometimes, are you really a sports writer? Some of the cretins I used to run with. Uh... <laughs> it's funny, Todd, because really, among the reasons that I decided to enter this business, and I decided very young, this is that, that that I wanted to cover sports. I, I didn't know, honestly, what I, it, the main thing that I was worried about, and this, I got out of school at a time when, you know, people talk about, oh, this year's not going to be a good year for college graduates. Well, for, for my age group, it was like five years. We had terrible economic times. And it was like, so what can I do when I get out of college that I can get a job in? So I knew I wanted to do cover sports. And whether that meant on the radio or on television or uh, in print, uh, that I, I wanted to do that. And of course, when you were in, in the 1970s, the first opportunity that you got to do anything similar to that was in print. And now a young person in high school can have access to significant uh, television and internet opportunities. And you know, radio maybe seems a little bit uh, uh, it, it's sort of like distant in the background, although it's certainly a vibrant medium still. It's just not the cutting edge. But you have a, a, opportunities to do all those things in high school. It was very rare. We did very little with, with video in high school. So print was where I began really getting into this. And when I did get out of college, uh, that was where the opportunity was for me. Uh, I trained myself in, in college and, and allowed myself to be trained to handle whatever. Uh, I didn't get as much work in television mm -hmm. as I might've, but I, but I did a lot of radio uh, right. and, and I did a lot of print as well. And so I was, the idea was to be ready for any of it. Well, I think your career is an example of that. You evolved into so many different expertise on platforms, um, you know, TV, podcast, radio, your Big Ten Network, you're a bracketologist for Fox Sports in March. You've been at the Sporting News since 2000 full-time, but you've been there right. for 29 seasons covering college basketball in total for 37. Right. That's a lot of hoops, Mike. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah, but the, the idea was that when I got out, and I tell, I tell young people now uh, that they need to learn three things. They need to learn how to write, they need to learn how to report, and they need to learn how to talk. And when I, when I say talk, I mean in front of a microphone, Obviously, it helps to be able to talk in front of a camera as well, but 
you're going to need all that now. And I was fortunate. I went to a school, Point Park University in downtown Pittsburgh, where the major was literally journalism and communications. The idea <laughs> was to master all of it, or <laughs> master is a strong word, but to, to, to get experience in all of it. Right. And, that, and that, that's, so that's how I worked it. And it turned out that print was the entree into the business. But uh, later on in my career, I got the opportunity to do a bunch of television as well. And, and I've really enjoyed it. What is it about college basketball, Mike? You've done other sports. And we're going to talk a little bit about your first 10 years or so of your career when you did a lot of other sports. But what is it about college basketball that has kept you enthralled for, well, this is your 37th season? Well, I, it. it it's interesting because, Todd, I grew up in, in the Pittsburgh area and I didn't know these people at the time, but there were a lot of other young sports journalists that were growing up uh, in that same time. And, and actually, one of them I did know, Dave Molinari, who became a Hockey Hall of Fame sports writer uh, yes. for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and Press. Uh, he actually went to my high school. He was three, four years older than me, but he went to my high school. So I did know Dave. Uh, but then people like Jerry Dulac and Tom McMillan. Uh, Mark Madden, yeah. uh, right. Dehan Yeah, these are all great guys and, and terrific at the business. And, and they all grew up absolutely entrenched in hockey. It was everything to them. That was their main sport. And I yeah. had very little interest in hockey. Uh, I just, it just was, it didn't move me. Uh, and, but basketball, it, it started with, uh, really, I trace it to, to watching my brother play. My brother was a very good player. He was a good athlete in all sports, but Basketball was his love, and it's the one he was best at. Uh, I, I'm going to his games in fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, all the way up through. Uh, he played until he was a junior at LaRoche College. Uh, he, going to those games, I fell in love with the sport. That was one. And that, that love that I, I made evident for the sport, uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, my, my high school bio, biology teacher was also an assistant coach on the basketball team, and he knew that I loved the sport. And, he said, hey, you, I'm going to go to the Dapper Dan game uh, in, in April. Oh, yeah. You want to go? Yeah. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, this is, I was, I was, <laughs> I was this 15-year-old loser, and my, <laughs> my high school biology teacher asked me if I wanted to get, go to this game. I mean, it was like being given a ticket to heaven. I mean, <laughs> it was the most amazing night. And uh, seeing all those great talents, and it wasn't even really, in the end, a great year for the, for the Dapper Dan it, it, uh, it was it was a pretty down year for that, but it was just like seeing all of that just like opened up the world to me. And I went to every Dapper Dan round ball classic from that year until I moved out of Pittsburgh in '93. It, it was really an important occasion for me. I got to know Sonny Vaccaro, and obviously Sonny's a good connection to have in this business. Uh, so I've known him now for close to 30 years, 30 years or so, uh, close to 40 years, I should say, and. And so that's really what got me into basketball was that those two things. And, uh, and, and when I went to the Pittsburgh press, I think I made it pretty obvious that that was what I really wanted. And I'll give Russ Brown and Sam Bechtel credit. They said to, they said to themselves, never out loud to me, but they said, well, we're not giving him college basketball until he really learns how to do this stuff. And so it took me four years, I think four or five years full-time at the paper until they finally gave me a college hoops beat. Well, let's talk about that. You joined the Pittsburgh Press in 1983, and you ended up working there for 10 years in your hometown paper, and you didn't do college basketball right away. You did a little baseball. You did some boxing, auto racing. What was it like when you first started out? I'm really curious about this. What type of machine did you use to write your stories? My, my first machine was the, what we called the TI. It was a Texas Instruments. Uh, it looked like a typewriter, and it had a roll of paper, thermal paper, that, <laughs> that you, when you typed, the words would come up on the screen, on, not on the screen, but on the paper. It would, uh, the thermal paper would take the heat from the, from the key, and it would put the letter into the thermal paper. And that was <laughs> how you knew what you wrote but it was all recorded in the machine. And then you, and it had uh, 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 couplers on the back. It had oh, these yeah. two little rubber phone uh, receptor, receptors and you would put the phone into it and then that would transmit the story. That was my first machine. And I worked on that for uh, two or three years, maybe four tops before Radio Shack came out with the Trash 80. 
Oh, the trash 80. Yes. The coupler, if you, if you bumped a table and you had couplers, your story was screwed. Yes. Right? Yes. It was gone. Yes. So you had to be, you had to have everybody around you quiet. But then when you got the trash 80, you could throw that thing out of the press box <laughs> into the street and it would still send. Todd, do you know how many sports writers, if they had just bought like maybe 200 shares of Microsoft, the first time they pressed the button and it said copyright Microsoft, <laughs> we would all be among the wealthiest people in America. But we ne- none of us did it. Like Microsoft, what is that? And then we would just go on and type our stories. Right. But it came up every time. It was like, buy Microsoft, people. But we never did. You can only see four lines of copy, though. Yes, So you would write these paragraphs that had like 900 words in them. You didn't realize it because you couldn't see your copy. But it would send every time. In 2016, 2016, my wife and I went to Washington, D.C. for a week for vacation. And... We went to the museum. Yep, I went there. It might have closed. I'm it not did sure. close, which is yes. kind of an indictment of the whole industry, yes, right? Yes, that's sad. <laughs> but it clo- but it, when we were there, one of the things that we saw was the Trash 80. That was like to show you like what newspaper business used to look like. And it was a big upgrade when they, I think they called it the 200. I can't remember for sure. But it had a flip-up screen, and now oh, you've yes. got like eight lines or 12 lines of copy. It was a big deal. When the deal. Cincinnati Post gave me one of those and I could actually flip my screen up, I thought, okay, I made it. They're, gonna, they're not going <laughs> to fire me. Uh, there you go. All right. I love the old machines, but it, those early days of being a young reporter, um, what did it teach you? What did you learn? What, what sticks out in your memory about being a young reporter trying to find your way? Well, the first thing that I realized now in looking back on my career, and I realized it a year, not, not, not that long afterward, was the, the hard part for me was learning how to report. Mm. That was the hard part. Not, not to report a story. I was really good at that. You said, okay, here's what you need to get in the paper tomorrow. I could do that. Right. But the intricacies of the beat, no, learning how to know who the right people were and, and who would talk to you and who would tell you the things you needed to know and staying ahead of the competition and all that, that's what Sam and Russ were waiting for before they gave me the college basketball beat. Mm-hmm. And it was hard, honestly, on my first beat, which was Penn State football, to do all of that. Because one, it was two and a half. Well, it was really almost three hours removed from where we were based. Penn State, uh, State College, University Park was uh, at the, the when I started, it was a four hour drive. Then they kept opening up little pieces of highway. And by the time I finished on the beat nine years later, it was like two hours and 40 minutes to get yeah, there. It took a while for the wagon train to get there. Yes, exactly. So it wasn't, it, it, that was always an obstacle, but then there was Joe and, and Joe was the most difficult person I've encountered in 40, 43 years of doing this now. All right, let's talk about Joe Paterno. He's the most difficult person you encountered in 40 years of doing this, why? Because he, he, it was interesting because the, the narrative about Penn State football and Joe Paterno when I took over the beat in 1984 was that he did everything right and everything was wonderful and everything was great uh, and nobody ever had a problem and, and it, was, it was all granted. He was St. Joe and, and there were a lot of national media people, accomplished national media people who perpetuated that. And, uh, and, so I went up there thinking that, and then with each passing year, he tried to make my job more difficult, and he, he didn't treat me with much respect. Um, I was young, and I get that, and, but I was trying to do a good job, and with a little bit of guidance, I mean, and I think a coach has to, uh, to interact in a way that offers guidance. To, if you want your team to be covered a certain way, then you have to respond in that certain way. You have to uh, interact with the people who cover you in a way that promotes that. And what his did basi- Paterno do? Basically, it was just keep closing doors. Hmm. Uh, it started with the, when they closed their practices off. The practices were closed well before. It's standard practice now, and it's unfortunate. Uh, but back then, it was he was among the pioneers in that. And, and not telling the truth about injuries and that sort of thing. Uh, when I started doing it, there used to be, I used to go up on Thursday before for a Saturday game for home games. And the, the locker room would be open to reporters on Thursday afternoon after practice. Mm-hmm. And I was the only one who took advantage of it. And after, I think, two years, maybe three tops, he said, 
you know, I, he said basically, well, that's it. I, we're not doing this anymore. And then they would bring players out to a, a player lounge or whatever to in, for me to interview. Right. And that, and that was less, uh, that was less productive, but uh, you had to live with it. Um, and then after that, uh, that shut down. Uh, and then then you can only talk to players on a conference call. And honestly, it's, you know, I got to know some really bright, engaging young people by doing the interviews in the locker room or even to a lesser, to a lesser extent, uh, in the, uh, interview area. Uh, but by the time I, my last team that I covered, I, I didn't know a single player on the team uh, because I didn't get any chance to do it. And I remember Ken Denlinger followed that team. It had like an inside uh, the program kind of deal with Joe and he did a book on it. And I, and I remember reading the book and thinking, you know, I finally got to meet all these guys that I, that I was covered and didn't know. Uh, he was just, he, he was hostile to the media in a lot of ways, except when it was a big national and, and they would come to town uh, and, and, he, and do an article on him. And I, 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 it, I was, it, it bothered me while I did it. And it bothered me for years afterward that he was that difficult to deal with. But I look back maybe 15, 20 years later and I realized it was the best education I could have ever gotten mm. because it made me realize don't just accept what's on the surface. Don't accept what everybody is saying about somebody. Find out for yourself, is this really the person that they say it is? Is this really the program that they say it is? That's, that's what I learned from covering Joe uh, and Penn State football. And I, I, I really believe that it made me a much better journalist having gone through that. Yeah, make a call, develop sources, get other people. You don't need to get it just from Oz himself. Yeah, and, and as, as well as just that, you know, it's funny, that, like I mentioned about the, the national narrative about Joe, and that's, that persisted during my time there. Uh, they still had very, they, I covered a national championship team in 1986. I covered one that played for it in 1985, so they still had very successful teams in that period. So they still had national people come in, and then they would go back and write a a similar, I shouldn't say the same, but a similar glowing article about who he was. And Mm -hmm. and I I would always be sitting there, you know, I talk to myself a lot because I work at home, and uh, I'd say out loud, like, talk to me. I'll tell you. It's not that. (laughs) That's not what it is. This is not how this program is. It, it, It it, it may not be necessarily bad, but it's not this. Uh, and no one, of course, ever did talk to the, to the local reporter about that. But uh, it, it, I, you know, I covered them for nine years. I never had a one-on-one with Joe for all really? the times. I nine asked, years, one. never had a one-on-one. No, I, I, I remember one time, I think it was around the time they played for it the first time, we were going to do a big uh, feature on it. We called it our page three in the, in the Pittsburgh press. And and so I wanted a one-on-one and I got a four-on-one with three other reporters. Can't remember who they were, but, uh, that, that, you know, I could, I could get a one-on-one with, with Jerry Faust, uh, or Lou Holtz when we caught when, when, the, when Penn State would play Notre Dame and we'd go cover that game. I could get that, but I couldn't get it with Joe. Wow. Mike, when years later, when the scandal hit with Jerry Sandusky and it all fell apart there and Paterno was fired at the age of 85. What did you think then, looking back, based on your own experiences? Yeah, what I wrote uh, upon the uh, before he passed, but upon the the, uh, the the dissolution of the Paterno program was that I believe that the secrecy of the program contributed to what not not to necessarily what developed, but to how it was all handled. Hmm. That secrecy was held as sort of a sacrament in Penn State football program over the course of that time. And I, I, I think it ended up being, again, I, I'm not asserting that Joe knew anything or anything like that, but I do know that once it was on his desk, he could have been a hero. He could have said, this is horrible. We got to stop this. We got, and, and that didn't happen. Uh, it could have happened immediately. And that's not because he was the most powerful figure in the state. And if he just said, you know, this, this is, this is horrendous and we've got to, you know, we've got to do something about this. If he'd have gone to the, to the, his bosses at Penn State and said, you know, this happened, it's bad, but we have to put a stop to this and we have to make sure uh, that we get out in front of it. Uh, I think he could have been a hero of sorts and he did not choose that 
course, and Penn State did not choose that course in that circumstance. It sounds like the experience of covering Joe Paterno really shaped how you went on to cover college basketball itself. You went from football to basketball, but you learned a lot of lessons from being around Paterno. It did. And I, and I think one of the lessons, look, uh, Bob Huggins' career did not end the way uh, we would have liked it to. But you covered Bob uh, for a period of time, uh, probably about as long as I did. Uh, uh, I, I was only cover, covered the beat for four years before I was able to get the sporting news as a full-time job. But that program was not as malevolent as it was being portrayed nationally when I entered the beat. It was, it was not, I mean, the, the young men that I cover, people like Kenyon Martin and Melvin Levitt, Danny uh, Steve Fortson. Logan. Danny yeah, Fortson. Guys. Yeah, good guys. Those, yeah, exactly. Uh, but it was not the way it was portrayed uh, nationally by a lot of important people uh, and important publications when I joined it. And so, again, that goes back to that. Don't accept what everybody else says. Accept what you learn through your own personal experience and reporting. And that, that so uh, when I, I, I understood uh, at the time, especially uh, not long after I left the beat, I understood that, that Bob had, uh, you know, issues uh, that, that he needed to deal with at times. But, uh, but I, I still felt that, that he was more open and honest about who he was and what his program was than, than, than the person I dealt with previously. Let's talk a little bit about that. Our, our paths did cross in those days. You had left Memphis. You had went to Pittsburgh to Memphis, where you covered college basketball from 93 to 97. And then you moved to Cincinnati at the Cincinnati Enquirer. I was just at the end of my tenure at the Cincinnati Post at the time. And so we're both around Huggins, uh, I think in that 96, 97 season, might have been. Yep. What, what do you recall about covering a guy like that who has a reputation um, this narrative that's formed nationally, but on a day-to-day basis, how did you find covering Bob as a reporter day-to-day? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I've, I've covered coaches that I enjoyed covering more. I mean, I, I, I loved covering the Memphis Tigers and Larry Finch. He was open and, uh, and less volatile and that sort of thing. But I, I found covering Bob to be uh, a pleasant experience. Uh, the teams were entertaining that we talked about the young men that were on those teams. I enjoyed dealing with them. Uh, it, the, the program was well liked in the community. Uh, there were, there were, it was not always, uh, it's not, a, not every single day was perfect. And I remember that there were you know, one player got suspended in my second year, I think, or third year on the beat. Uh, and they just would not say why that player yeah. got suspended. I remember being frustrated by that. Uh, but, uh, I, I think in general, it was, uh, it was, it, it was a, a good beat to be on. And again, you know, cover it with people like you and Jeff Shellman, uh, as the competition. I, I enjoyed that. Uh, you were both terrific reporters and made me be on my toes and fun to be <laughs> with when we go to dinner on the road and that sort of thing. Yeah. I think I learned a lot of lessons. I was, um, still learning how to be a reporter myself at that time, you know, and I think I was a little young trying to figure out, like you said earlier, like who's who, what's the chessboard here? Not just the checkers, who are the real players and what's actually going on. And, and, uh, so I thought that was very educational for me too, because, you know, I go into a beat, you know, thinking in generalities and then on a day-to-day basis, uh, dealing with somebody, uh, like Huggins, you know, it was, it was challenging for me as a young guy, you know, uh, I thought it was a very, every day was a little tough for me personally, but then I think it did make me a better reporter. And years later, you know, I had a good rapport with Bob. We, we crossed paths and we would talk. Uh, but I, I look back on it saying, you know, sometimes you, sometimes a reporter is just learning on the job. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things that has always made me a little crazy about our business is that uh, no one teaches you how to do this uh, other than maybe your peers or your immediate bosses might say, Hey, do that. But like, we don't have beat writing uh seminar at, at you know, at, in Ponte Verde beach or something, you know I mean? Like, right, right. It just, you just don't have that. Like they expect you to be able to do it. And if you can't do it, they'll find somebody else. Uh, that's you know, like, they have all these things in, in businesses and different 
uh, different enterprises like the dentists all go learn how to be dentists or better dentists at some convention in some nice place. They don't have that for us. Exactly. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's one of the challenges of, of this business. Okay, so you cover college basketball in Memphis for several years, and then in Cincinnati, you're you're with the Bearcats and Bob Huggins, and then you started writing for um, for the Sporting News, and then you moved to full time at the Sporting News in 2000. So now it's college basketball national beat. I was wondering how challenging it was to approach a subject when you had to write about somebody like that that you didn't have the day to day with, but then you also were forming opinions or reporting on news about somebody who already had this huge national reputation. I, yeah, again, I think it goes back to that, that I, I, I approached everybody with an open mind. And how did they treat me? How did they behave in front of me? Uh, what was their work like? Uh, how much, you know, when I'd get access to people, I would form opinions based on that. Uh, you know, the, the good example of that was um, when I was covering hugs uh, and at the time, Skip Prosser was the coach at Xavier. Right. And Michael Perry was covering Xavier uh, for the, the Inquirer. So, and he used to write all these wonderful stories about Skip. And they, and they, they seemed almost fantastic uh, because like nobody could be that good a guy and that bright and that, you know, that well-read and that, it, it all seemed so, so performative uh, from, a, from, you know, from covering, you know, at the time, the, the, the bad guy in town Mm-hmm. Uh, or the guy that so many people looked at, at that way, the black hat. Uh, and it, it didn't seem performative. And so this is what I say. You, you got to get to know people and, and do, because then I met Skip. And he was that guy. Yeah, he, he was. He was the best person yeah. you could yeah. ever meet. And, he was and, great. He was probably my favorite coach I ever covered. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah. You, you, you just couldn't meet very many better people than Skip. And he was everything that Michael portrayed him to be. But as I said at the time, it seemed like it couldn't be real, but you go into it and then you, and then I meet Skip. And a great story about that. Maybe my favorite story that I ever did for Sporting News Magazine was about Jay Williams, who's now at ESPN. He was then, in 2001 and 2002, the best guard in college basketball. And in 2002, he was on his way to National Player of the Year. And we wanted to do a story like kind of a, we were very much a nuts and bolts kind of thing. We'd we did much. Uh, we did much more with the with the uh, actual games than our competitive publication did, which was more into the people. Right. Uh, and so we wanted to do a story about what was it like to prepare to play against Jason Williams and now Jay Williams. And I called four different schools that were on their schedule in January, and every one of them turned me down. I didn't get turned down for anything. Like if right. we wanted to do a story, like people are like, okay, the door's open, you know, come on in. And, and no one ever turned down the sporting news at that point. And so we wanted to do that and they all said no. And then, okay, what's next? Skip's, uh, Wake Forest is on the schedule. So I call Skip and he's like, oh yeah, come on down. <laughs> yeah. It'd be great. And he opened the door and he did all this stuff for me. And they, he let me sit on their meetings and all the rest of that. And they ended up giving Jay about 31 points or something and losing at home. It's just like he was like a regular person. He's just, and, and, I, and, I, and I still love that story because I think I did a good job writing it, but also because it meant I got to spend three days with him uh, chatting about basketball and the Steelers and, and all sorts of other things. Yeah, I remember uh, Skip, I got to know him well when he was an assistant for Pete Gillen and I was covering Xavier basketball. And so you get to know the assistants, right? That's how you're right. learning your beat. And right. uh, so we ended up talking about literature and <laughs> yeah, his beloved Steelers, and uh, you know, but again, you got to know this person, and then when they become this thing that's a public figure as a head coach, you have enough education about who they are and where they're coming from. I think there's a mutual respect that's built up. So then, when you're recovering the beat, you have a little better understanding of what's going on. Exactly, exactly, and it, that so that the opportunity to get to know those people over time and. I, when you're doing a national, uh, national circumstance, you do get a lot of doors opened. I'm not going to pretend that it hasn't made my life easier, so to speak, to be at the sporting news since 2000 or since 95. Uh, there are people that will take my phone calls that maybe wouldn't have taken it three years earlier mm-hmm. when I was in Pittsburgh. Right. Uh, 
it, it, it has opened a lot of doors. I got time. I got a chance uh, in, I, I had so many one-on-one conversations with Mike Krzyzewski over the years that when it came down to his final year and this, his final year was 21, 22. So we're just really coming toward the end of the worst parts of the pandemic. Uh, and he's not really all that eager to do uh, a series of, uh, you know, hey, I'm saying goodbye kind of articles. Right. I, I, I was able to get one uh, because I had built up a relationship with him over those, uh, what, I guess, uh, 20 years or so uh, that I'd gotten a chance to, uh, got to got to know him. And we had so many good conversations. And I think I built up respect with him so that he didn't, he only did a few one-on-ones. I think he did one with the, uh, the News and Observer, the Raleigh paper, and he did one with me and, and not many beyond that. And so I, I feel like that was, again, part of building up that rapport through knowing the game, loving the game, communicating that I love the game and want it to be the best it can be. Uh, and then also just uh, you know getting to know Krzyzewski on his terms and not on, well, this is what everybody says about him. So this... What they, what everybody says about it must be true. So that that's the approach to take. What do people get right about Trzeszewski, and what do they get wrong? Uh, I think that I think uh, that, you know they get right that he's a terrific coach. I think they get wrong that uh, I think the sideline demeanor. A lot of times, this is true probably in basketball more than anything, because you see the coaches so uh, intensely, and there are so many sideline shots of them that people think that how a coach comports himself on the sideline is who he is. And I can give you uh, scores of examples of that. And that's, he's certainly one. Mick Cronin uh, from UCLA is, you know, he's a pretty fiery guy on the sideline and people right. think that's who he is. He's the most laid back guy. And then, and then there was Gene Cady back uh, with Purdue back in the nineties and two thousands. And Gene, everybody thought that he was the most miserable person in the world because he <laughs> seemed like it on the sideline. And, and Gene Cady, when I finally got to meet him, he is the biggest teddy bear there's ever been. Like, he is just the sweetest guy. Uh, and it just was complete opposite of his sideline demeanor. So I think that's probably a lot about, uh, of Mike, about what they think, people think of him, uh, 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 you know, in terms of that. And I think they, they, I think they probably think that because he coached Duke, that he's more uh, elitist that he is. I mean, that's not really who he is as a person. He's not, he's not, that's not the way he is. Uh, he's, he's much more down to earth than that. The loves his family above all. And I think that's a, a big part of why he coached as long as he did. Uh, I wrote about this probably around, uh, 2016, 2015, something like that, that when people were, everybody would ask him every year, are you going to retire? And, and, and I, I know, knew him well enough that he didn't have a ton of hobbies. He wasn't a golfer, wasn't a tennis player, uh, wasn't like a guy like uh, Roy Williams will tell you straight to your face. He loves to shoot craps and he, and he loves to go to casinos and stuff. And that's not Mike either. And, you know, Mike, for Mike, uh, while his girls were growing up, one of the things that they'd love to do, because I ran into him on a trip like this one time, he would take his girls and his wife, Mickey, to Broadway. And they would go see two, three, four, four shows, whatever they could squeeze in. That was something he loved. But then, you know, his three daughters are now all grown up and married and have their family. So that's not really that feasible now. So he, he's very engaged with, with the family. So he, he basically integrated a lot of his family into the program his do, you know, and into various enterprises that he's involved with. Uh, and so that kept him close to his family while he was continuing to work on being Duke's basketball coach. It didn't take him away from his family. It, they were closer because of it. And so that's why he lasted as long as he did uh, as head coach until finally, I think he and Mickey sat down and realized that it was time to, you know, to tap the brakes a little bit. All the conversations and time you spent with uh, Krzyzewski, do you have a favorite anecdote, behind-the-scenes story, even if it's just you and, you and Mike uh, somewhere on the road or something? Yeah, I think the I think honestly the one it's you know it's going to sound somewhat uh, it, it's, it's going to not going to some people might not think it reflects well on me but um, this was right after I started at the Sporting News uh, full time two thousand and I had been part time from ninety five until two thousand doing the one or two co- one column a week that's to the start eventually it became two because the 
this thing called the internet became a thing. And so I would write one for that. Uh, I hadn't been in the gym with uh, Duke. Uh, I hadn't done anything specific with them. I'd covered their game against Carolina in early February. Uh, at, at, at that one was at Cameron. Um, but I hadn't had any one-on-one time with them or anything. And then they won the national championship in 2000. Uh, and I was getting, uh, I was walking alone through the tunnels at the Metrodome in, in Minneapolis. And, and I saw him in his golf cart and he was being driven. And I just said, congratulations. And he said, thanks, Mike. And I know this is sound bad, but that was a big moment for me because that meant he knew who I was. I, I he, you know, I, I, it, it really meant a lot to me because that, and, and the, and the reason it meant something to me was because he had to have seen something I did and he must've liked it enough to, to note who I was. Right. Because it wasn't that he and I had conversed or I had interviewed him or anything like that. It was something that I wrote must've meant enough to him to say, I got to remember who that guy is. Right. And that, so that, that's, you know, I, I know it sounds silly, but it really meant a lot because it meant I was making an impact. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, 1992, East Regional, Final, Philadelphia. We're talking Krzyzewski. It's the all-time college basketball game or certainly in the debate. Kentucky Duke, the Leitner shot. You're there. Where are you sitting? I was sitting exactly behind the Kentucky bench on the, uh, uh, what, on, for the camera position, it's the near side of the court. They're shooting in. Uh, I believe that's where, yeah, because, yeah, it was. I was on the near side of the court. Usually they shoot into benches, but in this case, they were not. Uh, so I was on the, on the, on the side of this court where, the, where uh, if you were looking at it, they, uh, Grant Hill was throwing uh, to, from the right to the left. Uh, and that's where I was behind the Kentucky bench. And it's funny because uh, I, I remembered being there. And then during the pandemic, when CBS was showing old tournament games to cover the time because they had everything else to show, uh, there was one time out that you could see me and I, I froze it on my DVR and took a picture of it and put it on Facebook uh, because I, yeah, I, I, that's where I thought I was. Uh, and there I was. And I was looking a lot younger then too. But the, <laughs> the reason I got to be at that game was I had always been assigned to do it. I was covering Pitt at the time and they, they did not make the tournament. They, they got put into the NIT and they had a road game at Penn State. And I thought it felt like it was a trap for them to go up and get their tails kicked. And then the Pitt might think about firing their coach at the time, Paul Evans, because I knew that the athletic director didn't really like him. Uh, and it come off uh, making the tournament, I think, every year that Paul had been there, except that, except one where one of his starters got hurt and then this one. Right. So I thought it might be something, but they went up and they beat Penn State. Well, that meant I had to cover an NIT game. I think it was on the Monday of, of uh, that, it, that regional week. Uh, so Florida came up to Pitt to play them. So my whole goal in my mind was Pitt needs to lose this game, but not by too many points so that that <laughs> firing thing doesn't kick up and I have to deal with Sports that. Sports writers, we were always cheering for ourselves. <laughs> yes, because if they lose, if they win, they've got to get on a plane and go to Purdue yeah, and play a road that. game on Wednesday. No, you don't which, want that. Once that happens, I'm probably out of yeah, going right. to Philly to cover the, to cover the, the East Regional. And so uh, they, it was a close game. Florida gets ahead. They have, they're up by three with about four seconds left. Pitt's, uh, Pitt advances the ball. Sean Miller, now the coach at Xavier, yes. uh, coach at Arizona for a long time, was a point guard. Uh, and he got the ball to about midcourt, and he heaved the ball up, and it caught the back rim and bounced out. And it was a perfect ending because it was an easy story to write. That was the ending of Sean's career. So it was easy to write. I got done with that story. They weren't going to fire him. 
And I got him uh, in a company car and drove it to, fi- to Philly you're, the next day. You're playing with house money. That's great. <laughs> Absolutely. And and, it, and the, the trip to Philly was amazing on many fronts. Uh, uh, again, you know, those, those chance meetings, Len Elmore, uh, the great Maryland player, terrific yes. analyst for CBS at the time, now... Uh, now working uh, various different outlets. He's been, he had, has been at, at times a colleague of mine at, at Big Ten Network, a great, uh, wonderful guy. I didn't know Len. I met him at, the, at, the, uh, at that, you know, like during the press time. And again, I didn't, you know, I just said hello and he, he, he knew who I was from my work at the Pittsburgh Press. So it was, that was important to me. And it, it, it's, you know, those are the connections that you make various different ways by being there by, and I think, I think it all goes back to loving the game and caring about the game. Todd, I remember when, when I was, uh, when they used to, they started the Nike all America camp and it was up, it was in Princeton, New Jersey for the first couple of years. And I'd hear all these stories about all these players being there. And I'm like, I gotta be there, but my paper's not going to pay for me to be there. I gotta be there. So one, they moved it to Indianapolis and I went to my wife and I said, I want to take vacation time and I want to go pay for myself to go to this thing. And she said, go for it. Wow. Uh, and, and so I stayed in the cheapest hotel I could get. And, and I went to the Nike camp for four or five days and I saw Corliss Williamson and Rashid Wallace and got to sit with all the coaches. And this was, you know, this is the kind of stuff that I was willing to do because why well, I, I loved being there, but also I wanted to invest in my career Right. Uh, and that's what, I, and basketball is where I want it to be. Now, I wanted to, before we drop the subject of Kentucky Duke, you're sitting in the row right behind the bench, the Kentucky bench. Can, can you hear the huddles? And why didn't you say, guard the inbounds pass? <laughs> well, I could not hear the huddles, but I will tell you that I remember distinctly. It was, it was a fabulous game, even without the Leitner finish. It was, it was a tremendous game. It was breathtaking for two, two out, nearly two and a half hours. And when Sean Woods dribbled across the foul line and hit the half hook over Leitner, it was an amazing shot. And I remember distinctly saying to myself and getting ready to write on this idea, what an amazing way to end this great game. That's what I thought. I thought the game was over. 2.2 seconds left. What can, what can you do at 2.2 seconds? Uh, and I found out what you could do in 2.2 seconds. And I af- afterward talked to, to, uh, to the, the various people at Duke, and they were saying that Krzyzewski was really confident in the huddle that they could pull it off. And, uh, and Krzyzewski, you know, he, you could say that, uh, that he was just uh, trying to pump his guys up, but in the end, he was right. They were able to pull it off. Uh, should they have got guarded the inbounds pass? I think it would have made it easier, but really what they should have done is guarded the guy who received it. Uh, you remember Darren Feldhaus and John Pelfrey both backed away, especially John, because they were so conditioned not to foul in that circumstance and so concerned about fouling. And they, and they allowed him to shoot un, basically an uncontested shot. And that's what made it really easy. If you're going to have two guys guarding the player who's most obviously going to catch the ball, they have to actually guard him, but they, they worried more about fouling. So I guess in the end, you're much less likely to foul the inbounds passer. So at least make the job hard for him. Now, I did not cover that game. I was at a different regional. I was with the Cincinnati Bearcats in Kansas City, and I was watching that game. But I have learned a detail about that Leitner play here in Columbus. Jamil Martinez was a big man for Kentucky on that team. And Jamel lives here in Columbus, and I got oh. to know him a little bit over over the years, and we'd run into each other, and we and we, we inevitably talked about that game a little bit. And Jamel had fouled out, right? And he said that at the end of that huddle, before they took the court, the very last thing that Patino said to the players was, "Don't foul." <laughs> there you go. And Jamel said. That, to me, was just the wrong message. He wasn't criticizing Patino, who was obviously a great Hall of Fame coach, but he felt like that was a message to be passive. Yes. And not aggressive. Yes. And he said that was the very last thing that Patino told the players going out on the court. Don't foul. And like you said, if you look at the way Feldhaus and Pelfrey reacted when Leitner caught the ball, is they backed away. Yes. They said they didn't uh, want to they, foul. They backed away. Uh, that, that, that's... That don't foul message clearly resonated. Uh, uh, Rick is as good a coach as there has ever been. Uh, you, and what and there used to, I, I always use this this, this uh, descriptor. 
when I was a little kid, they used to have this thing called the International Race of Champions, IROC. And they would take drivers from all the circuits and they would basically give them all the same cars because the idea was try to find out who was the best driver. Right. And if, if it were an IROC race, I always say that Rick Patino and Larry Brown would be the guys that I would have my money on. They're the guys that, you know, there are different things that each of them doesn't do the best uh, in terms of operating a program, but you put five guys in front of them and, and them and Bob Knight, and they're going to do the best job of making them into a better team of all. Mike Krzyzewski is still the greatest college coach of all time because of what he accomplished. And he certainly had, he, he, you know, he, he would be in that race as well. And he'd be up near the front, but uh, a lot of his, and like a lot of John Calipari's is getting guys to play together uh, or getting to play for the team. And that's, that was a big thing for Mike was the communication, but those guys, they could just, you know, they could take you, me, and three other guys, and, and we would be the Wait best we could man. possibly Wait. be. Yep, absolutely. I don't know if it's you and me. <laughs> yeah, even us. We just, I'm not saying we'd win championships, but we'd be better than we would have been without them. <laughs> Mike, 37th season of college basketball. We talked about Duke, Kentucky. When you think about all the amazing moments, is there one in particular that stands out to you besides Duke, Kentucky? I'm not saying that's your number one, but you have witnessed so many historic moments in college basketball history, great coaches that you developed rapport with and players that you've covered. Um, when you think back on your career, what comes to mind as a personal story? Well, you know, I think that, that among the things that I really, uh, you know, I, obviously the Leitner uh, game was the greatest game I've ever seen and, and ever expect to see. And maybe in any sport, it was just an amazing thing. But I, I thought getting the chance to cover, uh, well, I was in Memphis at the time. So Arkansas was one of our schools. I mean, uh, the state of Arkansas is, is like, you, I could throw, practically throw a baseball from one side of the river. Well, maybe that's kind of a little far, but I, I maybe hit a golf ball from one side of the river to the other. That's how close the state of Arkansas was. Uh, so that Arkansas was a very important, uh, their, their participation in the 94 tournament was very important, uh, to the Memphis commercial appeal when I was there. And there haven't been a lot of African-American coaches that have had the, uh, you know, that to that point in time that had had the opportunity to be on that stage. So getting to cover Nolan Richardson, right. uh, and, and, and that run through, uh, the NCAA tournament and covering that final four. Uh, that, that was, that was big for me. And, and I, and one of the things that, one of the reasons that, uh, that, I, that I, I enjoyed doing it was, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, at the time president Clinton was, you know, he was from Arkansas, he was governor of Arkansas and all of that. And he was in the building the night they won the championship. I remember having to go through a security line and it was such a pain in the butt because he was there. So everything we went through on an ordinary game uh, was multiplied by four uh, because he was there that night and he was down on the floor after the game. Uh, so that was, that was really big. I thought that uh, getting a chance to see Nolan uh, raise that trophy uh, and having the president of the United States in the house, it's the only, I, I've, I've been to other games with the president. Uh, Obama was at the Carrier Classic, uh, I think it was 2011 maybe. Uh, in San Diego, he sat a couple of rows in front of me. I could only see the back yeah. of his head. But He came to uh, a play-in game in Dayton that I covered. That was the other game I was yeah. at that the president was at. Yes, he was, I, I don't remember which year that was, but I remember he was there with the Prime Minister of Britain, I believe, mm -hmm. showing him what American college basketball was all about. I think it was Cameron at the time. Uh, so I, I was at, so I've been in the, in the building with a couple of other, a uh, couple other, with, couple, with the president on a couple other occasions, but that was, that was pretty cool as well. So I, I thought that that was, that was really an important moment in college basketball history. Well, he wasn't the first. Uh, John Thompson had won it in 84, but uh, it, 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 was, it was really important that, that Nolan won. And I, I think it really helped as well that he wanted a Southern school because I think it, you know, I, I watched some of the things that have been done. Uh, SEC Network did a really nice uh, retrospective on the SEC uh, and they did another on the ACC as well that that really delved into uh, what segregate, segregation was like in college basketball in the '60s. Uh, when I was growing, when I was growing up, but too young to really know about it. Right. Uh, I was, you know, I'm 
six or seven or eight years old uh, when all that stuff is happening. Uh, so, you know, in retrospect, that, that really feels like something that I was glad to be a part of. I remember being at the Final Four the very next year in Seattle and um, Nolan Richardson and his players were up on the podium and they were talking about that trope of no respect. But because of the history that you brought up, I started to try to think about it differently and think that they're talking about something much more than just the poll. Yeah. And I, and I felt like at that point in my career, I was able to kind of contextualize and see things a little differently. I did not know Nolan. What was he like as a, as a coach to cover? Well, he was, you know, he was uh, easy to talk to about basketball, but, uh, but not always the, the, you know, not always open about how he felt, the, you know, about, about what he was going through or had gone through. And, and later on, he was much more open about it. Uh, but, but he was someone that very much wore that, uh, you know, that badge uh, that you talked about. Uh, because, you know, one of the things that, uh, that you noticed, especially in that era, was that, that national, uh, national narrative concept that would develop around certain teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- this, was, this was true. I remember this was true of Duke Vegas in 1990. I yeah, remember. I covered that, yeah, that, that when Duke upset them the next year. And I remember that narrative was still in play the next year. And, and I remember, it, like, because, like, the Duke guys, the, the kids were great. And I know some of the players that are on that team now. I know Bobby Hurley, great guy. And, and Ala Abdelnabi is one of the nicest people that you could ever meet. So generous. So there wasn't, any, wasn't anything wrong with how they were portraying Duke, but it was the emphasis on the contrast. Um, and I remember sitting there and, I'm, you know, I'm 30 years old and I'm listening to this and, and the, the questions of the UNL Bay players were so much different uh, than they were. To, and and there, it was clear that what they were trying to present was the Duke players are this, you know, upstanding, uh, you know, students, student athletes and all that. And these, uh, these uh, Vegas kids are these renegades. And I remember thinking, Greg Anthony's as bright as anybody in this building, let alone, you know, not just the players, but the people. I mean, you could tell the guy that was going to be, he was going to have a significant career. He was so sharp. He was so bright. What difference did it make what school he went to? Right. And the same thing was true two years later when we were at the final four in Minneapolis with Cincinnati, um, Michigan, uh, Duke and Indiana. And yeah. when the, when the Cincinnati press conference was hell. Uh, I, the, the, you know, if you, if everything that happened could be condensed into one question, it would be, what are you Juco losers doing messing up our final four? That would have been the question that would, you could, if you would condense the entire nature of the conversation between the reporters who covered that final four and Bob and his players, that would have been the, that would have been what it would be condensed to because it, it, it that's, that's how it used to be in, in, uh, in covering those sorts of events. That, because remember, a lot of the people who would show up at the Final Four weren't necessarily people who covered college basketball day to day. Right. You go to a Final Four now, you don't see a lot of those people. You right. mostly see people who live in the sport, uh, either with the four teams that are there or people who do what I do uh, for various publications. Yeah, I was at that 92 Final Four, and I remember it just being so unfair. Um, you know, again, like the generalization, and really, let's get down to it, right? It's, you know, it's race. race Some of it was so that, much too, of yes. Um, and, and I just remember thinking, like, this is, this, is not the, this is not what people who know know. <laughs> right. But this narrative is being formed, um, and that narrative is tough to, uh, to overcome. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's still people. Who, uh, if you if you mention Bob Huggins, the word zero graduation rate will come up. And I remember in when I was in Memphis and I was writing for the Sporting News at the time. Uh, I talked to the people at Cincinnati after that was made that was made public, and the way they figured the graduation rate at the time was uh, if you were a transfer, you didn't count, no matter you graduated or not. If you were Junior college and you graduated, didn't matter, didn't count. If you were a walk-on, it didn't matter, didn't count. Right. It only mattered if you signed as a uh, high school recruit. So in 92, the team we're talking about, the JUCOs that nobody wanted in the building, 
92, that team, they, they had five seniors and four of them graduated. And their rate for that year was zero because Anthony Buford was a four-year transfer from Toledo, Akron, Akron or Toledo, believe, Akron. Yeah, yeah Akron. Uh, uh, Mike Reckonacre was a promoted walk-on. Uh, and then you had two other players uh, that were uh, junior college and only one, and three other players who were junior college recruits and only one of them didn't graduate. So 80% you had, uh, but that rate, the rate for that was zero. And people will, you know, they look at the, what they call the, uh, uh, what, what, what they come up with, the GSR, the graduation success rate uh, that the NCAA promotes now. Um, and people, and people make fun of it and it's, and there are problems with it, but it's certainly a big step back from when you could graduate four out of five seniors and get a zero rate. Right. Well, Mike, I think the, what you're talking about, um, really for me is something that I appreciate in your work all these years. And that's being able to contextualize, being able to go past the surface and understand the background story or, or the bigger picture and, uh, and I think it's shown in your work over the years. Uh, you do it all. You do columns, long form, breaking news, analysis, podcast, radio, TV, Big Ten Network, Sporting News, Fox Sports in March. And I think we need, we need that. You know, we need that ability to be versatile and, and to bring understanding. And everything isn't just uh, black and white. There's a lot more gray in the world than we want to know sometimes. Yeah, I, I'm I'm big on that. Uh, that's always been a big part of what I do is try to try to look at something. There are very few occasions when I will just uh, you know just slam into something um, because uh, there's usually some nuance behind it. And my 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 job has always been my 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 directive has always been to try to find the nuance in something. Find, yeah, you, and and think critically, uh, not just think. Uh, you know, what's going to be the most popular opinion, that sort of thing. Uh, what, you know, what everyone else thinks uh, I'm often going to go against the grain because right. I look at things, I try to look at things uh, analytically and critically and, and independently. And so, uh, you know, I'm going to say LeBron James is the greatest basketball player of all time, even though uh, uh, the, the, uh, the preponderance of opinion is that it's Michael Jordan. Uh, but I can give you, you know, I can go and I can give you a real good analytical case about why I'm right. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and, you know, if some people get tired of those kinds of arguments. I think they're the lifeblood of sports. I, I love them. You can't compare errors. Well, why not? Who loses? Well, it's it's two, an fans, two fans sitting in a bar arguing. Exactly. That's what really sports gets down to. So <laughs> Exactly. When, when, when I first started uh, at the Pittsburgh Press, there were there was no Internet. There was no uh, Twitter. There was people would call the press sports department to settle a bar bet. Oh yes. Okay. And, 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 and I would, and those were fun calls. And, and, <laughs> and so, so I absolutely believe in that, but I don't believe in, uh, I, I don't believe in just, uh, you know, going along with the crowd that says this is the greatest thing of all time and saying, okay, well, if you say it, I'm, I, you know, then that must be true. Well, those calls to the Pittsburgh Press were fun calls. I used to get them at the Cincinnati Post in the late 80s, early 90s. And this has been a fun call. I, I am so uh, so happy that we were able to reconnect. It's been much too long that, since we talked, Mike, and I've had a lot of fun looking at the nuances of your own uh, tremendous career in the last 40 years. And, and I wish you all the best, and thanks for joining us. Well, as I said, Todd, it's a real honor. I've always been a fan of your work. Uh, amazing stuff that you've done over the years. And... Uh, a, a good friend and uh, and to be put in the list of uh, the, the amazing journalists you've talked to over the years it, it really is an honor for me Mike thanks my Venmo is <laughs> <laughs> take care thank you thanks for listening to Press Box Access you can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday if you enjoyed this episode please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando 
producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer, Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix, dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.